Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Every once in a while, I do clarify that indeed I'm not a rabbi, but I am an ordained spiritual director. I do spiritual counseling and workshops. As a matter of fact, I just finished a workshop on Sunday. I did an afternoon workshop with a lovely group of people about aging to saging and how we can turn around the idea of sort of getting older as some pathological issue and make it more of a spiritual journey into the autumn of life, the renewal of life and new purpose uh, with a, a bit of a different fuel for the, for the engine of what we do. Uh, so it was a lovely event and I really enjoyed it. Uh, been getting some lovely uh, notes from people on the Facebook page, not that kind of rabbi, about some of the interviews we've been doing and really appreciate that. And there have even been people who've been donating to not that kind of rabbi. And if you'd like to be one of those, go to the Facebook page and click on donate uh, and you are, are free to uh, give as little or as much as you'd like uh, to keep us going so that we can continue to give you this show. Uh, Robert Priest was on a little while ago, got a lot of reaction to that, very positive. Uh, Robert had a, you know, uh, you could have looked at it as a woeful tale to tell about depression, 14 months hospitalized recently uh, for depression, but uh, he's come out of it with a lot of beauty and strength and more poetry in him and uh, writing. Um, he told a great story, I have to say, about um, when he was in there, he uh, agreed finally to do electroconvulsive therapy, which most people associate with only very bad things, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and that sort of thing. But it's a much different thing now, and it helped him. It was the only thing that helped him at that point. And so he was there also advocating that it not be banned that it still be an option for people uh, at the behest of one of his doctors who said, please tell people that this is a valid form of therapy. It's not a torture. They sedate people now. They don't have pain, but you do lose pieces of memory for a while and they take a, a while to come back. And one of the things he, he, he lost was that he'd written a, a trilogy, an entire trilogy of fantasy books. And he had, he had no idea what they were about. So he read one. And can you imagine that you've written a book, you can't remember anything about it. So you're reading basically somebody else's book. So he read the book and about halfway through, he said to his wife, this is good. I like this. And when he got to the end, he went, what an ending. That was fantastic. So uh, irony and beauty and all those things. Uh, he did have a poem, he talked about his father a lot and his father was not kind to him when he was young, uh, was quite distant and harsh uh, and at times physical. Um, and uh, there's been, uh, you know, a healing over the years, but I, I wanted to read you the poem because I, th I think it's pretty powerful. My father's hands. My father had so many hands. He almost three. My father had so many hands. He had almost three. My father had almost three hands, but not enough to touch me once gently. Oh, my father had so many eyes. He, almost, he had almost three. My father had so many eyes. He had almost three. My father had almost three eyes, but not enough to see me once perfectly. My father had but one mouth and one heart to lift those bales and bales at the factory. My poor father of fists and fists beating at the wall, beating at his brow, beating at his children. 
my poor factory father, lined and fat-bellied now, tranquilized and happier, made smaller by so many sons. The winds gave him only one heart, and they said, here, spin it. Make it the hole in rock. We whistle shrill through. Grit your teeth and count your children. He wonders what to do with hands now, where to put them, these tender lined things that ache for sons. Oh, my father, we are here, the prince of wanting, emblazoned on us like radioactive brands. My father had so many hands and he waves them now, ashamed a little, looking puzzled as we leave at the movement from his wrist as if he wondered, what are they when they are not fists? That's my father's hands from Robert Priest. And I wanted to share that with you because I think it's a beautiful poem. Our relationship with our fathers as sons is complex and interesting. My father died over 30 years ago. So my relationship changed. You know, sometimes when I talk to friends of mine and their fathers or mothers or you know, people very close to them have died. And it's the first time someone in their life has died of that importance. They tend to think it's over, that there's no relationship anymore. My experience is that's just not true. I'm not talking about images and visions and, you know, real dialogue of some kind. Just they're always going to be there. They're always a companion to your life. And sometimes they're your guardian angel and sometimes they're the dark shadow in the corner of the room. But the relationship continues in one way or another. And one of the things I do in that aging workshop is uh, a rabbi who I was learning from. Uh, her name is Reb uh, Nadia Gross uh, out in Boulder. And she, uh, she writes an Oh My God letter to everyone in her family that really matters to her. And I said, well, what's that about? She said, well, I have four kids and a husband who's also a rabbi, Victor Gross. And um, she said, one day, someone's going to probably walk into a room and go, I'm sorry, your mother died. And they're going to go, oh, my God. So she wants them to be able to go somewhere online or in a filing cabinet and read a letter that she wrote. And she rewrites them every year to those children or to her husband or to her mother, whoever she wants. And in writing that letter, you realize the things you never say to the people you love in your life. And she said, what it does is, yes, there's that letter in case you didn't get to say goodbye. But on the other hand, it makes you realize that you shouldn't wait, that you should just talk to people about your life and, and what they've meant to you while you're alive and while they can hear you. Uh, and it changed the way she related to her children and her husband after that. So it's a lovely little exercise if you, if you want to try it. I, I always find that halfway through the letter, I'm crying. <laughs> because I'm talking about things that I don't share enough, you know, dear son. And and it's not an advice letter. Speaking as a, a an annoying Jewish man, I'm trying to tell you, it's not a good idea to go, you know, what you should have done is finish the master's degree. That would have been a thing. But no, you had to go and Mr. Funny, all of a sudden, Mr. Funny is alive. So don't do that. <laughs> Just tell them what you appreciate and how much you... Uh, in some ways, it's also a chance to say, I, I, I wish I could have done better, because we all wish we could have done better. But in other ways, it's a way of saying, thank you for being someone who loved me back. It's a good thing. So that's a, that's a little thing of fathers, I guess. 
without having some corporate entity tell me it's Father's Day soon, I'm reaching out to you as fathers uh, and as sons and as daughters and, and fathers. Um, Michael Posner has been writing for a very long time. Uh, a lot of you probably know him from his writing in the Globe and Mail. He's written for uh, just about every major magazine in Canada you could think of. Uh, and he's written books, of course. Now, he's done an interesting thing. He's taken uh, a Canadian icon, Leonard Cohen, and instead of just writing a, a biography in his own words about these things with the occasional reference to somebody who knew him, he's done hundreds of interviews and created a collage, a trilogy of books. This is the first book, the early years, but a trilogy of uh, of this magnitude is filled with all of these people who saw Leonard Cohen and from Leonard Cohen himself, how he saw himself at different phases of his life. So we're going to talk about the early years and he's here to uh, do that with me. Mr. Posner. Hello. How are you? Hi, Ralph. I'm well, thank you. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. So what made you decide that you needed to really explore in such great detail the life of Leonard Cohen? Um, well, it goes back to a, an earlier book I had done on, on another Canadian icon, Mordecai Richler. And I had adopted the same technique, as it were, oral biography, I call it. Um, Mordecai had just passed, and so I, I started out on a little journey to collect stories about Mordecai, who, as you probably know, was a, was a bit of a character, a little curmudgeonly. And, um, and so I did that book. And then, and then <coughs> some years, not long after that was published, it occurred to me that Leonard might be an appropriate candidate for similar kind of treatment. So I wrote to him and, and he was in the middle of being, of suing or being, of suing his former, business, uh, former personal manager who had absconded with a mere $5 million of his money. And, and so it was a, not a propitious time. He may not have done it in any event, but he wrote back and said, well, that's an interesting idea, but not now. And so I just, I was at the Globe and Mail, I dropped the idea, but when he passed into 2016, I thought, you know, maybe I can resurrect this idea. The Globe and Mail had seen fit to part company with me by that time. I was essentially unemployed. I was a freelance writer. And, um, and so I thought, let's, let's see what I can find. I had read um, two biographies of Cohen, both of them quite good, I thought. One sort of had come out in 2012, that was Sylvie Simmons' book, I'm Your Man, very good book, kind of emphasis on the music side. And earlier, Ira Nadell, Nadell who's a professor of literature at the University of British Columbia, leaning more to the literary side. But my instinct, as a journalist was, there's probably more to be had here, that, that they've given you know, a pretty exhaustive treatment of the well-known narrative line of Leonard Cohen's life. Let's see what else we can find. And so I began and, and lo and behold, it turned out that there were quite a lot of stories that had never been told. So um, you know, a huge figure, much bigger internationally, obviously, than, than Mordecai. And, and so that appealed to me too, that the book might have some wider traction beyond Canada. There's a whole uh, aspect in here of um, Jewish Montreal. Uh, and over the years, I've interacted with lots of uh, Jews from Montreal. 
And it's a different Jew than a Toronto Jew. At times I kind of put it down to it being more kind of a Russian Jewish flavor and the one in Toronto, the Ashkenazi Eastern European was the Polish Jewish flavor, which is a more conservative and circumspect kind of Jew, uh, which when I remember the first time I went to Montreal as a young man and, you know, I went to Ben's, the delicatessen, uh, with the yellow walls and smoked meat and none of the charm or charisma of Schwartz's. <laughs> it was more of cafeteria. Uh, but even there, I could feel that there was something, there was this kind of siege mentality, you know, this Anglo-Jewish, we got to stick together, Westmount kind of thing. So this is the kind of hatchery for... Leonard Cohen, and you, you you really paint that picture. Tell me what that Jewish firmament and, and what Lenny Cohen, how he fit into that. Well, I think your your observations are correct. I mean, I'm, I'm a Winnipegger by birth, which was also a kind of Russian Jewish enclave. And to some extent, on a smaller scale, albeit um, not dissimilar from Montreal in the sense that we were, you know, there was the Anglo-Protestant um, uh, majority, there was a strong um, Ukrainian minority, and then the Jews were the sort of third tier down. Um, and in Montreal, similarly, on a larger scale, you had the, the French majority, then the English minority, and then the Jewish minority within that. Um, uh, almost three solitudes, in effect. Um, he grew up in, a, in an affluent, prosperous, well-known, distinguished family with a, a wonderful pedigree, both intellectually and commercially. Uh, his, his mother's father was a, a learned Talmudic scholar. His grandfather had been head of the Jewish community, uh, the, the chief rabbi of Montreal, or one of them. Um, his other grandfather was... Uh, a wonderful businessman, uh, one of the most successful businessmen in Montreal at the time, founders of the Canadian Jewish Congress, the first Canadian Jewish newspaper, active on virtually, you, you could pick a charity and the Cohen family name was attached to it, um, founders of um, Sherashamayim Synagogue, um, three rows, three rows of in the front of the shul uh, allocated or dedicated to the to the wider Cone family, um, where the men wore top hats, um, kind of conservative bordering on orthodox in terms of its orientation. Um, uh, and, and, you know, they would make a big deal of, of ritual vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the high holidays or, or, uh, or the other major holidays. Um, so Leonard came, came of age in this milieu where, where Jews were, were a minority, they stuck together. All his, most of his childhood friends would have been Jewish. Uh, he went to Jewish summer camps. Uh, he, was, uh, he took his bar mitzvah classes, of course, uh, at Sher Shemaim and was bar mitzvah there. Uh, but of course, the, the, uh, the major event of his young life was the death of his father. Uh, well, it's interesting that you read the priest poem on that topic, but his father died when, when Leonard was nine. And, and so there's, he's left with his, his mother, who's, who's wonderful, but somewhat neurotic and given to depression, 
Let's talk oldest. about his father. Let's talk to his father for a second, though. Sure. Because I find it there was, it would appear an inevitability to this narrative that he, Lenny Cohen was growing up with a dad who saw himself as doomed. Correct. Correct. Um, yes, there's a, a famous little anecdote where he turns to a relative in, in synagogue one day and, and tells the, the relative, you know, he won't live to see Leonard's bar mitzvah, which he, which he did not. No. Um, um, yes, that has a profound effect on someone, right? Profound effect. Profound effect. There's a, a story which Leonard told many times, perhaps apocryphal, I'm not sure, that on the day of the funeral or not long after, he, he writes his first poem. He's nine years old, and he embeds that poem in a bow tie of his father's and buries it in the garden. Now, the father died when he was nine. It was January 1944. Uh, the snow in Montreal in January 1944 would have been pretty deep. So there's some question about the authenticity of the anecdote. But that was the story he told. And, uh, and he, you know, his remark in years later was, you know, perhaps, and he went back to look for this poem years later and could never find it. And he said, you know, perhaps that's all I've been doing all my life is looking for that first poem. Yeah. Uh, um, but um, the, the father was, was loving but somewhat remote. Uh, somewhat didactic. Um, um, he dressed in, in, he dressed formally. He kept his shoes neatly together beside his bed. Uh, his gun in a in a bedroom drawer. Um, he was a, he had served in the military in World War One and been wounded, which contributed, of course, to his his ill health. Um, that military so, piece was very influential on Cohen himself, right? Absolutely influential. Um, he, he said at some point that uh, had his father lived, he probably would have been sent to Kingston and gone to military college. Um, but you can see in, in, in Leonard's life the almost militaristic uh, discipline that he adopts, both with respect to his clothing, with respect to his mannerisms, his rituals, and in his religious practice, both Judaic and Zen later on. You know, there's a wonderful moment that I think could be a whole movie, which is uh, Cohen getting his hair cut by a barber who is really instilling in him a seed that would grow later into a full tree, which was Zen Buddhism. Yeah, that's right. At, uh, I, I don't know precisely what age. He would have been a young, uh, perhaps just teenage years, and he's taken by an uncle first introduced to this uh, Japanese uh, barber who talks to him about Zen for a while and until he gets down to business and actually cuts his hair. And, and as far as we know, that's his first introduction to the world of Zen. But he went back there sometimes during he went back off there hours. Yes, he did. Yeah, he did. So that is interesting. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, you know, there's, there's a line in, in the favorite game, his first novel published in 1963, where um, he talks about uh, this sort of uh, ideal of, of, of being a monk and having all kinds of women to sleep with. And, <laughs> and you know, that isn't far from what happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think he nailed that one. He did uh, nail that one, but it's, you know, he, he wrote it in probably 1961 or 62, so it's, it's extraordinary. Um, 
What would you have made of uh, uh, spiritually looking at him and his growth as a child into, into his teen years? It seems to me that he identified without having to, without effort, uh, profoundly as Jewish. I totally agree. Totally I agree. I remember once I interviewed him and he'd, he'd done his time in LA, uh, you know, near LA in a Buddhist monastery for years. I think it's six years or something. He was there. Five. Uh, or he six was years. he was there for the better part of five. Yeah. Five years, right? And uh, we were doing a radio interview together, and he was he was coming through town, and uh, I loved talking to him because he had such a wry sense of humor, and people just saw him as 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 a downer, but he he had a twinkle, always a twinkle, it seemed. So we, you know, we. We'd done TV interviews that were five, six, seven minutes and not that satisfying, but this was a good half hour. And I said to him, well, you know, uh, it looks like, so you're a Buddhist now. And he looked at me and he just went, no, 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 I'm a Jew. Yeah, I, said, but you just, I said, but you just spent five months at a, or five years at a monastery. And he goes, Ralph, within anyone's religion is everything that you would like to look for. Your job is, and I never forgot this, is your job was to build a fence around what's sacred in your life and try to make sure that people don't trample on the garden. It's a great line. It's a great line. No, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, he, he kind of abandoned Jewish ritual to some extent, except for Friday night candles and challah. Um, towards the end of his life, he did that quite regularly. I don't know that he ever went to, he did actually go to shul and Rosh Hashanah in later years, as two, later years as well. But there was a long stretch where he was not terribly observant of Jewish ritual. But in his soul, in his, in his soul, he was very, very Jewish and that never left him. And he always said many times um, when people asked him about Zen, as you did, I have a perfectly good religion. Why would I ever abandon it? Yeah. Um, so he was faithful to that. There's a, I don't know if you encountered it in the, in the book, but he, twice in 19, at the end of 1963, December 63, and again in June of 64, he gives two public addresses to the Jewish Public Library in, in Montreal. And, and he kind of enunciates a position that I think he basically adhered to for the rest of his life, which, which was essentially that, you know, you can be a prophet or you can be a priest. And if you're a priest, you represent the community, you shepherd the community, you, you adopt and express the values of the community, you don't fight against the community much. And he, and he identified A.M. Klein as being a kind of representative of that model. Uh, but his model was the prophet. I, 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 I am one of you, but I am not going to accept necessarily your values or express them. The writer has to be at a distance from his community. And, and so he becomes a prophet trying to point out the, the, the errors, the, the foibles, the, the omissions of the Jewish community. He, he didn't like the, uh, the large synagogues, the, the appetite for materialism and consumerism. Yeah. He kind of turned away from that. He, um, his father dies and he's left with uh, a sibling and his mother um, it, it's interesting, his relationship with women. 
Like it you is. could you could look at it on the surface and just think, you know, a ladies' man is as he was called. And I mean, he, it, you know, you read the book and it never stops telling you about who he's sleeping with. It's just relentlessly sleeping with anyone in sight. It seems he just can't seem to stop. Um, which doesn't speak to a. I, I'm not quite sure if that's about a. a, a a profound insecurity, an inability to see a woman as anything unless he can see her as someone he can sleep with. Uh, and yet, he's such a gentle soul. Very know? gentle soul, as, as every woman who met him would, would testify. And even the women he essentially abandoned, in a sense, or who felt some regret at his parting, 90% of them speak well of him. There, you'll meet more of them in the future books. Um, he, he, there is a kind of, part of it is, is his adoration of beauty. I, I think it's a complicated question that you've posed. Part of it is the search, uh, the suggestion perhaps that's made by a woman who's a, a Jungian who, who says that he never successfully separated from his mother and therefore could never attach himself um, to any other woman in his life. Um, so that's, that's the deep psychological rendering of that. Part of it is, is, as some others have said or will say, that it was driven by his, his search for material, that, that in the, these sometimes intense, fraught relationships with women um, that often ended badly, um, there was material for his writing, and that all that ever mattered to him or I shouldn't say that all that ever mattered, but the writing was more important than the relationship. And, and, and so I think it works on a number of levels. And, and, and my temptation or my conclusion is that we shouldn't try to reduce it or make it a, a reductive or binary choice about him. Yeah. Well, there's nothing uh, binary about him, frankly. No, no. You know, he's... Uh... He contains multitudes. Like even, he's a camp counselor. And yet, I mean, I was a camp counselor at a Jewish camp. He was a camp counselor. I wasn't him. He, he had a, a soft voice. Everyone spoke about his magnetism and charm. And yet he had a sense of authority about him that had loudmouth kids listening to him. And then they'd find him, you know, as he got older as a counselor in a tent with one of the girls. And it, it would be nothing to it, which would be very quietly done. And, See you later, and thank you very, very much. Discreet. Very, very discreet. Very <laughs> discreet. So, you know that, and then he had the other part of him—that kind of militaristic sense of order. You know, even to the point where later in his life, uh, he start—he dresses in khakis. Dresses in khakis, and right? uh, and wears a Che Guevara beret for a while. And, uh, <laughs> um, but that magnetism—you see it again and again in his life. There was, there was something about Cohen that. I, I, I envy, which was his ability to be very still, very mm. focused. Mm. He, you know, there's a story, there's a story a guy told me, an American writer, Dan Klein, who knew him on the Greek island of Idra, and they go into Athens one day, take the boat to Athens. And they're sitting in this cafe. He's, they're both young, they're guys in their 30s, handsome Jewish men. And Dan, you know, Dan's a good looking guy, and they're sitting in this cafe. Nobody knows who Leonard Cohen is. It's about 1968, and um, and he says all the women are just making a beeline for Leonard. They, I said I might not as well have been there, and he said I, I don't know what it was, but they just 
They just were drawn to him. Um, you see it in on the Isle of Wight concert in 1970, August 1970, where there's a rowdy crowd estimated at 600,000. It's it's 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. They're drunk and disorderly, and they're lighting little bonfires and throwing beer bottles at the stage and at other performers. And Cohn comes on at 4 a.m., drugged, heavily drugged on Mandrax, and he manages to talk the crowd down. He just is completely charismatic. Um, he does it again in, in Germany a few years later, where he comes on stage and has the temerity to issue the Hitler salute to the crowd in Hamburg. And, um, and they go wild with, with anger because at that time, 1970, 1972, um, anything Hitler-esque was, was, you know, was a deeply offensive. But again, he manages to, to calm the crowd. And, and um, so there is that kind of, that stillness at the core of him that I think people responded to. What a thing to do for a Jew in Germany. I mean, I was in Germany once uh, on a speaking thing, um, Canadian club at uh, the two Canadian armed. Uh, uh, I did that. Spaces. Did you do I that? Did that? Yeah. yeah, Baden and Lahr, right? Lahr, exactly. Yeah. So the only reason I went is because uh, Al Waxman had to cancel, so uh -huh. I, so they said, "Okay, you go." So I went with my with my wife, and we had a great time. Yeah, yeah. I have to tell you, I'm sitting in the baths in Baden with these old German men. And, and I'm Moroccan, I'm not, I don't I have the Holocaust part of me in it. Like, you know, it's not the same as it would be for you for as an Ashkenazi Jew, right? Uh, with connection, direct connection to the slaughter. Yeah. You know, I, I'm from the other side. So, but yet I'd grown up with it. It was, it's part of my DNA. It's a generational trauma you pass on and, and an important lesson you pass on. But I'm sitting in this, these baths looking at these guys and thinking, but you must have been in, in some way in that war. And I would have been someone who was subhuman to you and you would have had murdered unless I, you could work me to death, which went, you know, whatever came first. And I, I just found myself so confused because I thought I, I just want to jump up in this bath and either, you know, yell, you missed me, you missed me, <laughs> you know, something like that, right? Just to go, fuck you, right? And but I think that's what Leonard was doing. Yes, that's that's the chutzpah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine you. doing that, standing on a stage and going, and uh, that's unbelievable, you know? And yet well, he comes across so soft and so his like his edges have all been rounded, but the passion is is direct and authentic, absolutely authentic. But remember, he also bought a Volkswagen in nineteen yeah. fifty-four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then he got his friend who was disgusted by it, who then got a, his own Volkswagen. At his exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Lionel Tiger. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I think about him, you know, there's all this stillness, you know, even, even where he can stand at a window and a woman walks in, there's a friend and just walks over to where he's looking out the window and just they don't say anything for five or 10 minutes, which right. nobody does. You feel impelled to talk, but it just drew her into his stillness. And that's fantastic. But I also see someone who's, who, who seems to me to be insecure and yearning and searching and, and digging in holes and making a mess and moving on. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's true. The moving on for sure, because 
uh, he, he just couldn't stay in the same place for very long. It became um, very uncomfortable for him psychologically, and he would move on. You know, since the book has been published and there's been a little bit of press attention, a number of people have come out of the woodwork that I didn't know existed, you know, and I'm sure there's many others, just people that I never found in the course of my research. And there was a woman I met, talked to the other day who was at, a, at camp with him in 1956. She was a counselor, co-counselor, and she became a psychologist, and they never had a relationship, um, but they were friendly. And she said, you know, I asked her, did, did you ever see Leonard go to a dark place, become a bit depressed? So she said, oh, yes. Oh, yes. So he's now 56. He's 22, 21 years old. And, and she said, you know, it was like sinking into black tar to be in his company when he was like that. It just overcame him. It was, I don't know if it was genetic or, or what it was, um, but it, it, it would overwhelm him. There's a story that's in a later book, which will give you, there's a couple phenomenal stories about him. There's one where he locks himself in a bathroom for eight hours uh, and won't come out. Um, uh, he's so depressed. There's another, a friend of his in LA in the early nineties comes over to visit and finds him curled up like a fetus on his balcony, uh, unshaven, unwashed, unfed, completely catatonic and she takes him home and bathes him and feeds him and, and, you know, essentially nurses him back to some semblance of life. So this was a very, you know, he, he, he was often asked about it in interviews. He talked about it quite frankly, talked about all the things he did to treat it, you know, from sex to drugs, to alcohol, to Zen, to whatever. Um, but it, it was, it was basically something he couldn't overcome. It's incredible. I've been speaking to more people lately who have a, a story of that dark horse, that that depression, that the black is always, dog. Yeah, always stalking you. Uh, and so you're seeing that as the sort of anti muse, the, the the part that debilitates, as opposed to the other muse, which he finds in women and in drugs and in. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, I would say. That's a good way of putting it. Um, you know, and he would say, nothing works. Nothing really works. Later, in, in 1990, early 1999, he goes to India. And he spent, by that time, 25 years studying with this Japanese Zen master, uh, Sasaki Roshi, and becoming a monk. And he becomes his, what's known in, in, uh, in Zen as his Inja. He becomes his aide. He cooks for him and he cleans for him. He's attached to him. He travels with him. It's like his private secretary. And, and, and he almost becomes a slave. He's, he's so committed to this task, this service, that, and, he, and he begins to recognize that there's something, something wrong, that he's kind of surrendered his, his own identity here. And so he becomes interested in, in, uh, in Hinduism. Um, and so he goes to India and studies with uh, a Hindu master named Ramesh Balsakar. And he goes in 1999, he's planning to go for a few weeks, and he spends four months there. And he goes back the following year. And he goes back the following year. So he, 
And when he comes back to L.A. in 2001, 2002, he says for the first time, now, I'm not totally convinced it was true, but he does say it, that his, the depression that had plagued him all his life had suddenly lifted. Um, and indeed, in the later years of his life, there is a lot less evidence of, of darkness. Hmm. So that's part of the search. The, the search Absolutely. I should tell people, uh, I'm talking with Michael Posner, uh, who's authored uh, the first, well, released the first in a trilogy of books on Leonard Cohen, Untold Stories, The Early Years. And uh, this is not that kind of rabbi, I'm Ralph Benberge. Um I wanted, what effect did it, you know, you really immersed yourself in Leonard Cohen here. I mean, uh, you went to the publisher and it was like, uh, I kind of got a lot here. <laughs> They're like, uh, you can't do this in one book, okay? Maybe you want three. Um, how How is Leonard Cohen intertwined with you now? Well, I've made myself offensive to a whole group of family and friends because of my propensity for telling Leonard Cohen stories. Uh, <laughs> it's like, we heard it already enough. Exactly. Um, so that becomes a bit tiresome. Uh, listen, it, it, it occupied my life for, it has occupied my life for four years, coming up next month or two months, uh, basically since he passed. And, um, and it was, you know, it was exhausting and exhilarating at the same time. You be, it becomes a bit of a detective hunt at some times because you'll interview um, Ralph Ben Murgy and he'll say, oh, you should, did you talk to so-and-so? He's got a good Cohen story. Yeah. And, and that so-and-so <laughs> will tell you two other people. And, and so, then you kind of wish they didn't. <laughs> well, at, at a but then, point, you, then you don't want to lose something. Yeah. You don't want to lose something. You never know. And sometimes they have nothing. And then sometimes they surprise you and they have the most amazing, the most amazing insights and, and stories about him. But it's and interesting. To, he's not polarizing. He's not the kind of person that in, in reading all these quotes, I'm not getting eight different versions of I, that's not the Leonard Cohen I knew. There, there's kind of a continuity to all this. There is. There's a there's a huge degree. There's a huge consensus about him. There are some naysayers, but there are very few. There are people that he chemically didn't work with, um, and 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 they're critical. There's a couple of. There's a couple of business relationships that go off the rails because Leonard would be enthusiastic one moment and then lose interest. And, and so the project would die and, and right. the partner would, uh, would be offended. doesn't happen often, but, but it does happen. So there, there are some critics of him. Um, there will be some women who, you know, saw him as, as essentially a serial uh, seducer. Not, a, not anywhere in the category of uh, Harvey Weinstein, not even remotely in that category, because he was so charming. But, but nevertheless, you know, and, he, and he, was, he was honest about it. I mean, one of his early songs, you probably know this, is, is the Stranger song. And the line in the Stranger song is, I told you when I came, I was a stranger. And, and um, so he's, he announces his objective pretty early on. I, I, I won't be here. I won't be here long. His mother uh, remained a, a, an interesting figure to me, but she also was somebody who just, you know, didn't think what he was doing was a good idea. Why don't you just go and finish your degree and never finish anything? Uh, and she was a very um, 
ballsy woman who offended lots of people. What would you say is the the relationship and how did it affect what we see as Leonard Cohen? You know, I think uh, I think of Eva Layton or somebody in the book calls it a love-hate relationship. Mm-hmm. I think he was deeply attached to her. I think there was a lot of love there. Uh, I, d- I don't want to diminish that aspect of it. At the same time, you know, there are stories of, you know, people being in his presence when his mother would call him on the phone and he'd be on the phone. Yes, mother. Yes, mother. Yes, mother. Rolling his eyes. And, 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 uh, you know, she was, she was, she was a hovering mother overprotective. He, in, in his adolescence, he was not the Leonard Cohn we knew in later life, the always thin, uh, very controlled about his weight. He was a very chubby Jewish boy in his, in his early teens or late teens, actually. And, and she would feed him and, and, uh, uh, you know, he—it's uh, a—it's a—it's a complicated relationship. That she was, she was, you know, considered considering the status of the Cohen family. And for those who don't know, if your name is Cohen, should be Kohanim. You're a priest or a rabbi, um, so you know it's high status. Plus, they had the financial status. But uh, you know, his father married a woman who the others would see as peasant class without knowing anything about her distinguished uh, intellectual roots, they would have seen her as peasant class because she was, um, she was Lithuanian. She spoke with an, the Russian accent, the Lithuanian accent. Um, she was, she was not as sophisticated. Yeah. Um, but she, she also gave him uh, an early love of music. She sang, apparently she sang very well and she loved Russian music and she sang Russian music in the house frequently um and and would have encouraged him so i think on the one hand she would have you know probably said finish your degree become a lawyer or a doctor um uh, but part of her also would have been very proud of what he did ultimately right ultimately 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 yeah uh marianne and suzanne they're in the book so marianne of course is the norwegian muse that he meets in 1960 on the island of Idra, she's recently separated from her husband. She has a one-year-old baby or a less than one-year-old baby. And they're soon you know, living together and beginning what amounts to a kind of on-again, off-again romance that spans most of the 1960s. Um, there was infidelity on both parts um, and the magic that they managed to create on Idra was not, they were not able to translate beyond Idra because couple times she came to Montreal and it, it just didn't work well. Part of it was his philandering, part of it was her philandering when he wasn't around. Um, uh, but she did give him a lot. She gave him, she certainly encouraged his, his writing on Idra. She was, she functioned as a kind of muse for him. Um, that was an authentic relationship, um, but it did have its strains. Suzanne Elrod emerges, comes into his life in 1969 in New York City at a Scientology convention, where he is briefly on another one of his one of his searches in a sense for meaning. Um, uh, he's immediately drawn to her physical uh, beauty, and uh, and she becomes the mother of his two children in the early 1970s. And that relationship is really tempestuous and complicated. There's more of that in the second book. 
Um, you just you just briefly meet her at this in this book yeah, yeah. in 1970. Um, really interesting woman, um, 15 years younger than Leonard. Um, it's it's um, it's a very complicated relationship. She called it a spider's web. He, it's so interesting that he can't seem to. I don't know. He needs to always be able to know that he's separate from what is around him. He, he needs never to feel trapped, you know. Well, you, so one person would say you're being trapped. Another person would say you're, you're deeply committing yourself to something and that the only way to get real value from life is to commit. He so. was deeply committed to non-committal. <laughs> but that's what I keep wondering about. His, he's, you know... Like when I read that he, you know, he was looking into Scientology and I just thought he's just a seeker, a searcher, but he, there's a lost quality to it too. It's not just grounded seeking. He's seeking in women. He's seeking in religion. He's seeking in poetry, he's seeking in fame, right? You nailed it. You nailed it. That's, that's precisely it. Um, and you might say he's looking for himself, you know, the essence of himself, uh, which maybe was in part eroded or destroyed by the death of his father at the age of nine. It's, 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 mm -hmm. um, it's a psychological conundrum. I mean, there's, there are some suggestions that he, you know, that he dabbled in, well, we know he took LSD, but he might've been part of those MK ultra experiments at the Allen Institute in Montreal mm -hmm. in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And, um, um, yes, absolutely. Um, always seeking. I mean, he, 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 he was hungry for experience. We haven't mentioned Irving Layton's influence on him. Yeah, Irving, yeah. Irving, Irving was a major influence on him. And Irving believed in, you know, seizing life by the throat and taking every experience and, and chewing it up. And, and Leonard learned something about that from him. I think that, that philosophy, he related to that philosophy. It seemed like it was... Um... You know, they couldn't be more different in the way they were approaching what they were doing. Irving and his wife, Aviva, were just, I mean, that would have been a, a Grand Prix race through the streets of life. It was just so intense and so extroverted in its way. And then there's, you know, Leonard, who's introverted, and yet he just keeps going back to the to the fuel and fire of Irving Layton. It, 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 it's interesting. I, that's a, that's a that's a valid observation, absolutely. He was uh, he had a lot of time for Irving, yeah. But there was also competition too at, at a certain. There was point. a kind of unspoken competition. I mean, remember that Irving is I don't know how many years older, but 20, 20 years yeah. easily older than Leonard, and he's he's you know on the downward trajectory of his life in the in the same years that Leonard is on the upward trajectory. There's some envy a little bit on on. Irving's part. There's even some suggestion that Irving wanted to sing and, and do what Leonard did uh, musically, but had, didn't have remotely that ability or, or talent. Um, so there is, there is some envy there. Um, and I think there's a recognition on, on Leonard's part that he is in the ascendant that, you know, to, if you were going to drape the mantle of uh, poet laureate of Jewish Montreal on anybody after Leighton, it would have been Leonard. Um, but almost by the time it would have happened, he, he said, I, I don't really want this, essentially. Right. And, uh, and so he moved on. 
Um, uh, but they were they remained very very close to the end of Irving's life. Leonard would visit him in the in the uh, in the home where where unfortunately Leighton was suffering from dementia. Uh, made regular visits whenever he was in Montreal. Um, that was a long, deep um, relationship. But again, it had its strains. And there's other characters like that in the book as well. Friendships that um, where they would compete, um, they would compete for women. I think uh, with that, with his with other friends that yeah. uh, it was a, it was a competitive sport. Yeah, you know, it's I keep coming back to this idea of you know a man who talks like this and very low, and yet he's there's a hurricane in this guy. He's just flying all over the place looking yeah. looking for a landing spot. You know, coming a uh, uh, coming onto shore. He, he just had so many contradictions. And I, I remember I, I, I interviewed him once on, on television for a, a variety show and he was uh, doing his big tour with the- 1989. Yeah, and the business, you know, he was, we were doing it in 91, he was on tour. Oh, because, okay. Because he need, you know, the business manager at the same time was also uh, bleeding him dry. So it wasn't fun, uh, but he's on this uh, with me. And I said, uh, uh, what's the line from uh, uh, Hallelujah? Uh, oh, I said, uh, so, you know, a line that's always struck me from this is love is not a victory march. It's just a cold and broken hallelujah. And he looks at me, and he, there's a live audience, right? And he just goes, wow, you're bumming me out. <laughs> you what? I missed that. You, you you're what? Bum, you're bumming me out. Bumming me. <laughs> <laughs> and I stopped and I realized that I went, wow, I just bummed out Leonard Cohen. <laughs> Because to a lot of people, he was the most depressing singer you'll ever meet. Right? Yeah, he has that reputation. You know, there's all these little code words they use about him. You know, the the bard of the bedsit, uh, the bedsits, the, uh, the grocer of despair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, all these descriptions. Where and other people will tell you that he was the funniest guy they ever yeah. met. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know. Uh, I mean, some of the songs definitely are dark. There's no question. You look at a song like Dress Rehearsal Rag, which is about his temptation to commit suicide. And, and um, you know, you kind of wonder where was he at when he wrote that song? Do you listen um, to You Want It Darker at all to the album? I have many times. I think it's a, it's a powerful, phenomenal last work. Do you know the, the album his son, his son Adam produced posthumously uh, after Leonard's death, I mean? Uh, I saw some uh, video of the concert he did, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't get uh -huh. the. Album. So there's. So uh, he got his father late, late in his life to not sung so much as recited, recite some of his lyrics that were meant to be songs one day if he had survived, huh. and and then he took those songs and wrote music for them and embellished them with music from other people. Um, and he turned out a, an album that could have been produced by Leonard. It's a, it's a magnificent work, actually. Oh, I got to uh, listen to that. Yeah, it's terrific. Yeah. So, uh, what do you want people to be? You have more books to put out, but when I say Leonard Cohen, you want me to think about what? I want you to think about a guy who who was was deeply complicated human being who lived a very compartmentalized life that bounced around the world and bounced between the 
universe of music and the universe of literature, the universe of Zen and the universe of Judaism and the universe of women. Um, he was he was a meticulous craftsman. He he spent months, years, many times writing, rewriting and rewriting the same lyric, changing a word or a comma until he got as close to perfection as he felt he could get. Um, and the work mattered deeply to him. I, I think I think part of him wanted to be that the the prophet that he talked about in his speeches, his lectures in 1964. He wanted to be able to speak beyond this generation, as as Bob Dylan has done so eloquently. Um, I th I think he kept that that uh, that notion, that idea in mind, and 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 his work through the years gets stripped down and stripped down, sparer and more spare. Um, you know, you look at the lyrics to, to the songs that appear on, on the last album, You Want It Darker, and they're all, they could have been written by Samuel Beckett. They're, they're, they are monosyllabic. If there's a double syllable word or a triple syllable word, it's very rare. He's, he's stripping everything to its essence. Um, and, and, you know, as one of his band members said to me uh, after touring with him in, 19, in the 1970s, he said, with Leonard, it was how few notes can you play? You know, how, let's, let's, you don't have to play the notes to actually have an impact. And, and, and these musicians, some of whom went to Juilliard or, you know, and were classically trained and we're used to, you know, embellishments and riffs and long solos, and 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 they would walk away from this experience profoundly changed as musicians by their exposure to Cone. He had that magnetic effect on them as well. Fantastic. The name of the book, Leonard Cohen, Untold Stories, The Early Years. Michael Posner is the curator of this biography of Cohen. I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, yep. Thank you for doing this. And, thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, so I've got a great picture of uh, me and Leonard at the show we did together, you know, TV show we did together uh, with our, both of us with our right hand in our pockets staring and just being around him was so um, quietly powerful that it yeah. was just a real joy. So this nice. brought back some really nice stuff. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All okay. the best. Okay. You too. Adios. Adios. Michael Posner on Not That Kind of Rabbi. I'm Ralph Benmergi. If you want, you can, uh, well, you can join me in different ways. You can go to the Facebook page, Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, we have a donation uh, button there if you want to do that. Uh, but also, you know, you can throw in some comments about the shows you've been listening to. I just had somebody get in touch with me and say, I started listening, you know, when you first started. And now I came back and realized now there's so many more people that I can listen to on your show. So uh, feel free to plunge the depths of the bank that we're creating and uh, to come up with any suggestions of anything you'd like. Uh, one more plug for uh, the Jewish men's retreat for any Jewish men out there who might be interested. Uh, go to menchwork.org. Uh, and usually we do this uh, in the United States and Connecticut once a year. I'm part of a wisdom council that has this JMR, uh, 
Jewish men's retreat. So this is JMR 29. And obviously, we're not going to Connecticut, it's virtual, which allows all kinds of people from anywhere to, you know, on a Friday night and a Saturday during the day, we're going to come together. And uh, it's really in the Jewish renewal uh, movement, uh, a wonderful experience for men. So if you're interested in that, just go to menchwork.org. And you'll see JMR 29. And you can register for it there. Uh, In the meantime, Take care of each other. I'm Ralph Benmergi, and I'll uh, see you soon on Not That Kind of Rabbi. podcast has been produced by tmds and accelerated by rome phone rome phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls visit romephone.ca to get started